We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. This is the last half of Hebrews chapter 12. And the section that we're going to look at today, it really continues the themes of chapter 12. Sometimes it's hard when you're reading scripture. Uh, I mean, we've been reading Hebrews kind of compartmentally in chunks, but man, when, when the, the author of the Hebrews wrote this letter, they read it in, in one fell swoop and it all clung together, all the themes. And so it's always important to emphasize that, I think, that, that we are going to see some of those same themes we've seen in chapter 12 already, the theme of the need for endurance in the Christian life, the theme of the reality of God's discipline, both formative and corrective, and the godlessness of Esau. You remember him, the immoral and godless, uh, and, and Esau is our prime example of someone who lived to satisfy themselves and their own self-indulgence. Manny, hey buddy, Manny's back. Right. Man, we've missed you. I just assumed I just assumed a bear. I just that's I mean I'm kind of morbid, but that's I hadn't heard from you in a while. Uh, so uh, today's section also pulls in threads and it's really exciting. I'm kind of a Bible nerd, so uh, this section is is grabbing threads of themes from all across the, the letter to the Hebrews and it's pulling them together. So really, in a way, what we're looking at today is a culmination of all that we've already seen in the letter to the Hebrews. Um, last week, Stacy and I, uh, after the service, we, we ran out of town. We had to cancel a vacation because of our COVID thing. And, uh, and so we snuck out of town for a, a short beach trip to Port Aransas. And, uh, and we had a great time. And we we're so grateful to God that we were able to do that before school started. We didn't think it was going to be in the in the in the the cards but it turned out that God opened up a way I'll tell you about it sometime but it was just really cool how God lined that up through the generosity of, of folks and through uh our our the the uh healthcare.gov sending us some random email saying that they'd automatically reduced our premium by like a third and that amount added up to the the amount that the trip I mean just crazy stuff like after we had already committed the trip I get this email in my spam and it's like is this real? And sure enough, the government wanted me to pay them less money. And I thought, that's, that's great. Thank you, government. Um, thank you, God, is the point. So we were real grateful. Uh, while we were there, I was thinking about today's passage. You can imagine, this is not a super easy passage, to say the least. So I was thinking about it while we are on the beach. And, um, and so you, you're going to have to excuse me, because all my illustrations today are beach-themed illustrations. So uh, I toyed with calling this uh, sunshine and sandcastles. We'll see what it ends up on the, on the website when we post it. Uh, but one thing that caught my attention this week is just the sheer awesomeness of the ocean. The sheer awesomeness of, of oceans and seas and these massive bodies of water. And there's so much going on there under the surface and there's so much power and majesty to it. But you know, it's funny, if you go to the beach enough, you kind of... Um, I mean, every day we went out to the beach, a red flag was flying uh, fervently, you know, and that means strong currents and, uh, and, and surf, you know, uh, a high surf, choppy surf, strong currents. Uh, that's one step below keeping people off the beach. Uh, and, but you don't, you can't see that necessarily. And you feel so comfortable with the beach. If you've been there, you, you pull out all the same chairs and all the same plastic buckets and everything. And it kind of lulls you into a sense of familiarity where you kind of lose a respect and awe of the ocean. 
until, you know, you look and your kids are boogie boarding and now they're like a quarter mile down the beach because of the rip current, you know? You know what I mean? But you, you kind of get lulled in a sense of familiarity. And, and I think in a very similar way, a sense of, of familiarity in a spiritual sense can dull our appreciation of God's holiness, of God's majesty and power and purity, his absolute otherness and separation from all that is unholy. We, 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 we get familiar with God and we lose that sense of appreciation of his holiness. And today's passage teaches us that by appreciating God's holiness, by relearning how to appreciate the holiness of our holy creator, that in doing that, we can actually better understand his grace and mercy. So that's what we're going to look at today. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it reveals God's holiness and God's grace. And and so we must embrace both God's holiness and God's grace in order to live as we ought to, to live the lives that we're called to in Christ. And in the two parts of our passage today, we're going to break it up into halves, we see that God's holiness, first of all, requires his grace. Okay, if God was just holy, then we wouldn't have a relationship with him, okay? So his holiness, because of his character, his holiness requires his grace and mercy if he's going to be the God who he presents himself to be in Scripture, But we're also going to see that God's grace should result in our holiness. So first, God's holiness requires grace. Our creator is both holy and gracious. We're going to pound that into our hearts and minds today. He is both holy and gracious. So let's look at chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. First of all, in 18 through 21, in the first couple verses of our passage, we see God's holiness how? In his, in his separation from sinners, in his separation from the unholiness of sinful man. And the author is going to use Mount Sinai, and if you remember the story in Exodus with Moses, Mount Sinai is used by the author because that's where Moses received the law, and that's where the, the, the old covenant was initiated through the giving of the law, Uh, the author is going to use that to symbolize the situation before us to his audience in the first century and to us today. So what is that situation? What question is that supposed to raise in our minds? What question was it supposed to raise in the minds of the Hebrew believers in the first century? The question is this, how can a holy God dwell with unholy people? If God is truly holy, How can he dwell amongst us? That's exactly what was on the mind of Moses and the people. And that was what the author wants to be on our mind as well as he recounts this. So I'm going to read to you quickly, starting in verse 18. This comes right out of uh, what we saw last week with the godlessness of Esau, you know, uh, selling his birthright and basically just treating God as, as nothing, as unholy. So it says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, In other words, a physical mountain. And to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind. These are all ways of characterizing. These are ways that the Mount Sinai was described in Exodus and other places in the Old Testament. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind. And to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. 
For they could not cope with the command, If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. So again, how can unholy people have a relationship with a holy God? In verse 20, the the penalty for approaching God in our unholiness, even of animals approaching God, is, is death. But the story of the Old Testament, the, the, the story of the Old Covenant is the story of how God provided a temporary solution through that Old Covenant, a temporary solution through that Old Covenant, specifically through the Levitical priesthood and this system of sacrifices where an innocent animal dies in the place of God's guilty people that God is seeking a relationship with. He makes a way temporarily through that old covenant. Okay? That's the story of the Old Testament. So the old covenant symbolized by Mount Sinai, where it was inaugurated, where where Moses received the law from God, that provided a temporary basis for relating to God. That was never supposed to be the permanent answer. Okay? But ultimately, that old covenant and the law and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the tabernacle, later the temple, that all looked forward to the coming of the Christ, the anointed one, foretold all throughout the scriptures. It looked forward to the coming of Christ and to the establishment of a new and better covenant. And that's what we've been talking about so much in the book of Hebrews. So so Christians, and the author knew this, but he's showing us a contrast, which we'll see in a second, Christians have not come to Mount Sinai. That's his point to these Jewish background believers. Why would you go back to Judaism? Like, we've not come to Mount Sinai as Christians because the problem of our unholiness, not being able to be in the presence of our holy God, that problem has been solved, folks. In verse, uh, verses 22 to 24, we see God's grace in this permanent solution for sin. Let me read it to you. It says, but, I love that word in scripture. It's used a lot in Hebrews. It's like there's this, but, and so often it points to God's grace and it surely does here. But you Christians have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads, that thousands upon thousands, innumerable angels, holy angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I think those are Old Testament saints, but we could spend weeks on just this passage. Uh, And then it says, and to Jesus. What? How does it describe him? The mediator of a new covenant. And what else have we come to? To the sprinkled blood. That is the sprinkled blood of Jesus, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So let's start with Abel. We saw him back in chapter 11, verse 4, in that long list of the suffering saints who stayed faithful, right? So Abel, righteous, innocent Abel, who who gave his sacrifice by faith and was acceptable to God and by God was called righteous, he was murdered by his brother Cain out of jealousy, So Abel's blood, it says this in Genesis chapter 4, it says Abel's blood cried out to God. What did it cry out to God about? 
It cried out concerning the guiltiness of of Cain. It cried out concerning the need for justice. It's what we cry out for when we see injustice. It cried out for the need for justice and for vengeance on the execution of his righteous brother. But as we see in our passage, the new covenant is inaugurated through the blood of what? Of who? It's inaugurated through the sprinkled blood of Jesus, which represents God's grace and God's mercy, God's grace to forgive us, God's grace to remove our guilt, God's grace to make us holy. That's what the blood of Jesus cries out and communicates. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. This is God's permanent solution to the question of how can a holy God dwell with unholy people? The the answer is the gospel. Instead of an earthly scene of of terror, of unholy people terrified by the presence of their holy God, shrinking back, not even wanting to, to approach the mountain, wanting a mediator in the person of Moses because they were so terrified because of their sin and unholiness and God's awesome holiness, his otherness. Instead of a scene like that, the author reveals a heavenly scene. It's not a scene on earth with a mountain that can be touched. It's a heavenly scene on a heavenly mountain on Mount Zion. It's a scene of joyful harmony. Uh, one of the phrases in there can be translated a festive or festal gathering. So there's joy and there's harmony. And what else is there? This is like that game kids in the highlights magazines, like what's the same and what's different between the pictures? Is God holy in both pictures? Yes, but what's the difference with the second picture? It's, it's that he's surrounded. There's proximity to God. His people are congregating around him in the very presence of, of both him, his son Jesus Christ, and the holy angels. So there's that closeness. So, so I want you to hear this, because this is so important, especially in our culture. How do we want to have a relationship with God in, in, in Paganism's on the rise. I mean, any, any kind of non-Christian context, uh, even in a secular context or an agnostic context, we kind of, what, what do we want to do to have a relationship with God, whatever he is or it is? We want to diminish God's holiness so that we can approach him. How do we solve the problem of our relationship with God? We'll just get rid of his holiness. And then sin doesn't matter anymore, and it doesn't matter whether we're holy or not. We can all just have a relationship with this so-called God, right? But that's not what God does. The one true God doesn't, doesn't lay aside his holiness in order to have a relationship with us. What does he do? He makes a way for us to become holy so that we can approach and be in his presence, so that we can, as the author says, said so many times, so that we can draw near to our holy God. That's beautiful. God is both holy and loving and gracious, and his holiness requires grace if he's going to be the God who he presents himself to be in Scripture. And we receive that grace, how? By trusting in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and took our unrighteousness, our guilt, our unholiness, the penalty of our sin upon himself at the cross. Um. I told you all my illustrations are going to be beach-themed. So the, the power and majesty of the sun, I think it's a great illustration of God's holiness. What do I mean by that? Well, my family, if you couldn't tell, we have fair skin. 
So when we go to the beach, we always have to take the sun into consideration. It goes very poorly for us if we disregard the sun when we're out on the beach all day, okay? Uh, Much of our time, in fact, is spent lathering, and and it's like you can never put on enough sunscreen, right? You know, it's like, well, now we're going to relather every hour, and now we're going to relather every 30 minutes, and now I'm just going to follow you into the ocean, like pouring sunscreen on you. Um, So that's kind of how we roll. Uh, It's not that bad, but close. Folks, the sun is 93 million miles away from us today. They're in abouts, okay? 93 million miles away, this giant burning ball is that we orbit around. But if you disregard it, it's heat. It can kill you. If you disregard its light and you do what my silly friend did that I think I betted him to do it, to look into the sun. If you disregard the light, the power of the sun's light, it will blind you. And yet, could we have life on earth without the sun? It's the, it's the warmth and the light of the sun that, that, that is a necessity for us to have life on earth. Without it, we couldn't have life. So we need the sun, but we have to respect its power and its majesty. And we can only come before it in a limited access. And usually, at least for our family, that's in the form of, of broad-brimmed hats and rash guards and sunglasses and sunscreen, okay? So we can come before the sun in a sense, but only in a limited sense. And at one point, I think it was Hannah, I was talking to one of my kids, and we were, we were just, um, I think we said, like, why hasn't anybody invented a pill yet that you could just take and it'll protect your skin? It'll, like, produce some chemical out of your sweat glands. You just don't have to put on sunscreen anymore, right? How cool would that be? So we were kind of, of, of wishing for that. And, and as I think about this passage, remember, I was thinking about this passage the whole time we're there. That's sort of like what the author's telling us in our passage is happening with the new covenant, with this scene that he's painting. You see, at, at Mount Sinai, you see God's people standing what? At a distance. I mean, they don't even want to come close. It's not that they're not going to touch the mountain. They're not even going to get close to the mountain. Okay? That's the first scene because they, have, they feel... Uh, 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 their unholiness, because of it, they remove themselves from God's presence. They shrink back. But folks, at Mount Zion, in the heavenly Jerusalem, God's people are congregated around their holy God in heavenly Jerusalem, and the sprinkled blood of Jesus is what makes that possible. The sprinkled blood of Jesus, you never have to reapply. That's what makes it possible for unholy people to have a relationship, to become holy in order to have a relationship with the holy God. Through faith in Christ, we have been made holy so that we can enjoy not limited, restricted access, that was the old covenant, but we can enjoy direct access to our holy God both now, today, and throughout all eternity. The way that we apply these verses, folks, it's to simply do what the author of Hebrews has been exhorting us to do already over and over again. What is that? How do we apply this? We take God at his word and we draw near to God. We take God at his word that he's made us holy and we draw near 
to our loving Creator who is both holy and gracious. We don't have to recoil from the holiness of God because of the shame and the guilt associated with our sin. According to the new covenant, we've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And that means that we have been made holy. Now, we are also being made holy, and Scripture does talk about this in a past in an ongoing present and in a future sense. We have been saved. We've been justified. We are being saved. We're being sanctified, made more and more holy in line with the holiness we have in Christ. And we will be saved. We will be glorified, perfected at the coming of Christ in in his kingdom. But we've been made holy. We've been cleansed. We've been sanctified. We've been purified. We've been set apart for God's holy purposes by God's grace. But, I can't stop there in our application. We must also appreciate God's holiness. And this means that, that for instance, he's given us his kids. Here's one for you. Jesus went up to heaven and he sent the blank spirit to live inside of us. He sent the kids. The answer is not Jesus. That's the holy. He sent the Holy Spirit to make us holy and indwell us as God's holy temple, both individually and corporately. And so part of taking the holiness of God, part of appreciating God's holiness, even though we've been made holy through the sprinkled blood of Christ, part of appreciating God's holiness and the fact that we have been made his temple, that he indwells us through his Holy Spirit, is responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's one of his jobs, is he, he points out sin and idol worship in our lives. And he says, you know, knock, 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 Ben, what's that over there? That's unholy, that's profane, that doesn't need to be in God's temple. That doesn't need to be in your thoughts. That doesn't need to be something you're looking at. That doesn't need to be something you're doing or not doing. And part of appreciating God's holiness is just responding to that conviction. And confessing our sin to God, knowing that it's already been paid for by Jesus Christ at the cross. Knowing that we're not working really hard to be holy in God's eyes. We're not striving to present ourselves inherently righteous before God. We've accepted that we're made righteous and made holy through Christ. And then we can just leave that sin and at the foot of the cross and walk away. And that respects God's holiness and respects our holiness as God's chosen holy people. As the church, of Je- the body of Jesus Christ, our head. How about that? God is holy and as his holy people, we can draw near to him, but we must do so in response to his loving provision in Christ. But at the same time, without losing our reverential fear, this is the good kind of fear, our awe and our reverence in our obedience to God. And this leads right to the point of the rest of our passage. God's grace should result in our holiness. God's grace should produce in our lives holiness. In verses 25 to 29, that's the last part of our passage, we see God's grace, and we also see the proper response of his people. In verses 25 through 27, God graciously warns us of his coming judgment. This is no mystery. God graciously tells us, this is what he's done all throughout Scripture, is he's warned everybody, judgment day is coming. He warns us graciously of his judgment. So how should we live our lives? Well, we take him at his word. 
We live accordingly. We live as though there is judgment. We're going to talk about that. Let me read it. It says, see to it. Watch out. Take care that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That's God. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. And his voice, that's God's voice, shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. God is the one speaking in these verses. And through the old covenant, God warned of the consequences of disobeying God's commands and disregarding his holiness. That was what the law of Moses and the sacrificial system was all about. So he, he had warned of what it means to disobey God. And at the same, it's the same thing, disregarding God's holiness and disobeying God's commandments. It's all part of the same complex, right? You do one, you're going to do the other. So he had warned. And, and the consequence was what? Same thing with Adam and Eve. What was the consequence of, of disregarding God's holiness and disobeying God's command? Separation. Separation from God and his abundant blessings. Unholy people in their unholiness being separated from their holy God. That's the consequence. But folks, God is still speaking to us today through Scripture. I don't mean this in a, in a, in a, a weird, extra-biblical revelation kind of way. I mean that, we can, that, that the Word of God is living and active. I mean that God is speaking to us right now, even through today's passage. The, the, the promises, think about this. I'm going to pull in some of the stuff we've learned throughout Hebrews. The promises of the new covenant are characterized in a bunch of different ways all throughout the letters to the Hebrews. Do you remember some of these? Uh, There's the world to come in in chapter 2. The world to come in which all things are subjected to Jesus that we don't see right now. Uh, In chapter 4, a Sabbath rest for God's people. Um, In chapter 9, Christ appearing a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Chapter 10, a better possession and a lasting one. Uh, Chapter 10 again, right after that, a great reward. Chapter 11, a better heavenly country. Chapter 12, an unshakable kingdom. That's what we see in today's passage. And then we're going to see this in chapter 13, the lasting city the enduring city which is to come. These are promises of the new covenant. And and along with these promises, as we see in our passage today, there's also a promise of judgment. There's a promise of a reordering of heaven and earth to separate from God, our holy God, and his holy presence to separate all unholy things from his presence, from his kingdom. And this is explicitly pointed out in the passage today. In fact, the author's quoting from Haggai the prophet. That, that, that's Haggai that he's quoting. In, in verses 26, verse 26, he says, and, and his, God's voice, shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more, this is the quote from Haggai, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Hundreds of years before Jesus 
Haggai the prophet is explaining that God will yet once more shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Folks, if you've never trusted in Jesus, I want to be real clear. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sin and rose again from the dead, then nothing in your life, including your life, will prove unshakable in God's judgment. And that's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow. But we are not holy and righteous and worthy in and of ourselves, okay? If you want to turn to New Age-ism and this divine spark stuff and all this, like, or panentheism or something, that's fine. But th- there's no truth in that. The truth of the matter is our holy creator God is, is the source of holiness. He defines holiness. And we are not holy in and of ourselves. We must be made holy through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? If you have trusted in Jesus, kids, even you guys, like if you've trusted in Jesus that he died for your sins and rose again, then you have been made holy. Then you have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Then then you've been given a new, unshakable nature. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. He gives us a new nature. We become new creatures in Christ, the scripture tells us. But even so, even as new creatures in Christ, just nod your heads. Can we spend our lives focusing on, on shakable things which, which are ultimately going to pass away? Just, just nod. Yes. Right? We, we can. Can we worship idols even though we've been made holy and set apart unto God? Absolutely we can. Instead of focusing on unshakable things of eternal value, do you know what has eternal value in this life today? Do you know what is unshakable today that we can focus our time on? Human beings that through faith in Jesus Christ are made holy and can dwell with us in the presence of our holy God for the rest of eternity. That, that is an endeavor worth pursuing. And even if you're not personally leading people to Christ every other day at a bus stop, obeying Jesus Christ our Lord and being used, set apart and used for His holy purposes. And we're going to talk about what priestly service means next week. That has eternal value. Just our obedience. Well done, good and faithful servant. In verses 28 and 29, God graciously welcomes us into His coming kingdom. So we should live as His holy citizens. Now, i got to point something out real quick. Uh, verb tense matters, right? So when we have come to the city of the living God in the earlier passage, that is uh, in the perfect tense. That is, it's already happened. Okay, so we've come to, and there's some scholarly debate on whether that means you've entered into or you've approached or whatever. But the fact is, in some sense, that is already true. That here we are in the presence of our holy God. That we are, already are drawing near to him. Okay, but then there's a not yet component as well. And that's what we see here. Since we are receiving, this is a present reality. Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's show gratitude. Another way to say that is to have grace. That uh, is the same word for grace that we've seen. 
have grace. But in this context, it means it's show gratitude, show thankfulness. By which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What in the world does that mean? Let's look at that. In verse 28, we see that the proper response to God's grace should be an attitude of overwhelming gratitude. An attitude of gratitude, kids. You can take that home, live with that. That's easy to remember. An attitude of overwhelming gratitude and a, a, a willingness to offer up gifts to God. To offer up our lives, in fact, as living sacrifices to God. But specifically in this context, gifts of praise and thanksgiving to God. And there's a similar verse that we're going to look at in chapter 13 that says, Through him, that is through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of what? Of praise to God. That is, and he explains it, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So in verses 28 and 29, we also see the proper response to God's holiness and glory. So even though we have direct access to God in Christ, I hope you believe that. We have have access to God. Even though we do, we must nevertheless, again, maintain an an attitude of awe and reverence for God. In other words, we, we must continue to revere God as holy, and we must continue to recognize the implications of God's holiness. How does the fact that God is holy and that we're made holy in Christ, what are the implications for our lives? So the author follows up this this exhortation with a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. Right in the context of the story of Moses recounting Mount Sinai, this is all happening in Deuteronomy chapter 4, chapter 9. It's all clustered around that part of Scripture. Okay? So he includes this, this verse from that very context in Deuteronomy. Uh, And and the context, by the way, is Moses not just recounting the story of Mount Sinai, but warning the Israelites against idolatry, saying right before they go in, like, don't worship false gods, (laughs) recounting to them what God said on the Mount Sinai. And and in fact, he goes on to say, you're going to worship false gods, and then I'm going to separate you from the Holy Land in exile, but you can be repentant and I'll restore you to the land, you know, in, in in grace. So that's the context of, of where we read these words. For the Lord, that's Yahweh, that's the covenant-making name of God. For the Lord your God is a what? Is a consuming fire. So in our passage, this, this comes immediately after the earthquake of God's judgment. That's what that shaking is all about. It's this cosmic earthquake that shakes. It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor for the judgment of God. And right after that is where we see this statement of God being consuming fire. So the consuming fire, folks, it can refer to God's judgment. Certainly it can. But let me tell you something interesting about this language in the Old Testament. God is a consuming fire. God is going to go before them into Canaan to destroy God's enemies as a consuming fire. But you know what else the consuming fire that God is is going to do? He's going to judge his people as well. Why? To refine them, to make them holy, to purify them. And you know what else that consuming fire, a fire that consumes, is used in the Old Testament to describe? The fire that comes upon an acceptable sacrifice that is consumed by flame and accepted by God. Isn't that beautiful? I I think the, the inspired author of Hebrews is brilliant, first of all. Whether it's Luke or Apollo or whoever, right? 
But I think that, that the author may be referring to God as a consuming fire to warn us against worshiping idols, because that was the context of God's people in Deuteronomy, but also to encourage us to offer acceptable sacrifices to God in worship, in priestly service unto him. So God has warned us of his coming judgment. He has welcomed us as holy citizens of his coming kingdom. And the only proper response is to pursue holiness in this life. Um, Galveston, Texas. It's on the beach, I told you. It's known around the world for two things. It also has that really big chess set, but that, the world doesn't know them for that really big chess set. Two things the world knows Galveston, Texas for. One of the world's largest sandcastle building competitions and one of the world's worst hurricanes. If you're looking for a quick beach trip this weekend, ironically enough, this Saturday, Dan, take the family, man. It's the 34th annual American Institute of Architects Sandcastle Competition, one of the biggest, most prestigious sandcastle building competitions in the world, folks. And it's just a couple hours away in Galveston. These teams of architects, literally architectural firms uh, and engineers, structural engineers, they compete to, to make, I mean, the most. I've got some pictures. Do we, do we have pictures? That one a couple years ago is called Enter the Dragon. And this is just sand and water and pressure, okay? Keep going through them. There's a couple. Uh, Batman, kids, you like that? I mean, it is, it's beyond your wildest imagination what these people do with sand and water, okay? They spend months, months. They come up with the idea months ago, and they start working on who's going to do what, uh, and, and, and they have these whole teams. And at the competition, they only have five hours to complete their respective masterpieces. So that's one thing Galveston's known for. A few weeks later, on September 8th, Galveston will recognize the 121st anniversary of the Great Galveston Hurricane, which was the deadliest natural disaster in United States history. And it happened in Galveston. It resulted, and they speculate, between 6,000 and 12,000 fatalities as it went up through, got onto the mainland and went up into like Ohio and places. Okay, but most of the fatalities were in and around Galveston when storm surge enveloped the coastline with 8 to 12 feet of vertical water. Just, just think about that. A couple inches of vertical water at high tide can push the water 20 feet up the beach. 12 feet of water in the storm surge washed out Galveston. In fact, I was reading on Wikipedia, Galveston used to be the, like the highest per capita city in the world had like 38,000 people in it. All these investors were pouring into it. And that ended the golden era of Galveston by scaring off the potential investors. And guess where they went, Mike? Houston. That's right. Well, this is now your hometown, so I can appreciate that. But they all turned to Houston and built up Houston. And then Galveston just became nothing, right? Well, sorry if you're from Galveston. But <laughs> Whoops. Sorry if you're online. Uh, but anyway, the point is, is that it ended this golden era. And when I was building sandcastles this last week on the beach with my boys and, and my, my daughter, 
um, we would always get to the end of the afternoon, and by the evening, we'd come back to the beach to like, look for crabs and stuff. Uh, the high tide would have already washed away our sandcastle every single night because it literally came up 15, 20 feet, the water did. And so everything we had done, all the work we had done got washed away. Guys, think about the hurricane in Galveston. What if the AIA sandcastle competition had been around back in 1900? What if the competition had been scheduled for September the 8th, the day that this hurricane made landfall? And let's say the storm's already approaching landfall. They didn't have like meteorologists back then, right, or Doppler. But let's say it's obvious. The storm's approaching landfall, but you decide because you've spent so many months planning that you're going to start building a sandcastle anyway. And then some emergency workers come up and interrupt you halfway through to tell you that you have to evacuate the beach. It's now or never. Now, you could ignore them and lose your life along with so many thousands of other people that got caught in the storm along with your sandcastle that you're working so hard to build. You can lose your life along with the castle. Or folks, you can escape with your life by leaving, by walking away from your building project, your sandcastle, that's going to get destroyed anyway. Or knowing the, the inevitability and the severity of this hurricane, you could just never start building a sandcastle in the first place. Don't worry about the fact that you spent months planning. Just, just, just don't ever stop. And then you can spend your time doing something of real value, like helping to save people's lives by evacuating them from the city. In today's passage, God graciously warns us about his future judgment so that we will leave our sandcastles in this life in order to live lives of holiness set apart for his holy purposes. So where are we spending time and attention on the architecture and the engineering and the planning of things that will never endure the earthquake of God's judgment in the end? Consider the words of Peter, the one-time fisherman who walked away from his biggest catch ever, walked away from his boat and his nets. He says this in 2 Peter, Since all these things are, are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found spotless and blameless by him at peace and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Holiness means removing worthless idols from our lives. Holiness means abandoning our sandcastles. So what sandcastles are we leaning into? What sandcastle building projects do we have going on in our lives this morning? It could be a lot of things, okay? Things you might not think of. A spirit of bitterness, of unforgiveness that's producing a root of bitterness in your life. You, you can walk away from that sandcastle. It's wasting your time and your ability to pursue God's holy purposes in this life. How do you do that? How do you walk away? You're going to have to repent of, 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 of the sin that's leading you to hold on to that spirit of unforgiveness. Okay? You're going to have to, to take a position of humility and dependence upon the Lord. Is it a job that promises more and more money? Okay? Just because a job gives you more money doesn't mean it's the right thing you should be doing, okay? But, but what if it demands too much of your time? It, it robs too much of your time away from 
that what God has called you to as a, as a mom, a dad, a husband, a father, a friend, a, 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 a minister in his church. You can walk away from that too, but you're going to have to repent of the idol of money or security or status. Is it a recreation that wastes too much time? You can walk away from that too, but you're going to have to repent. We're going to have to repent of the worship of the idol of entertainment and self-indulgence. Kind of going back to Esau last week. Does holiness mean that you can never take a vacation? You can never watch a TV show? No, not at all. But when we do take a vacation, like we did this last week, we can, we can offer the gift of praise and thanksgiving to God for the opportunity to enjoy his creation, his warm sun on our backs, his warm sand between our toes, and all the while we must never lose sight of our call to live lives of holiness, lives of priestly service in obedience to Jesus Christ, our great high priest. I'll close with another quote from Peter, and it includes the the words of Moses from Leviticus chapter 11. He quotes him. Peter writes this, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, and here's where he quotes Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The gospel of Jesus Christ reveals God's holiness and God's grace. So we must embrace both in order to live as we ought to. God doesn't diminish his holiness to accommodate our unholiness. Instead, he makes us holy in Christ so that we can be with him in his holiness and used for his holy purposes. So that my prayer is that we may all increase in holiness as we become more and more like Jesus Christ, our Lord. Next week, we're going to take a closer look at what it means to live a life of holiness, a life of worship, and a life of priestly service. We'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Please bow your heads with me.